In the first service, Luke had everybody ask each other what their favorite football team is. And even if you don't like football, there's only one answer after yesterday. Ohio. Wrong answer. The answer is the Missouri Tigers. And it is a testimony. Yet I don't even I do not understand college football. To me it, it's just confusing and it's just organized chaos. But it is a testimony to what can happen if you just keep showing up, right? Oh my goodness. The family station wagon became cool, right? Missouri's good. This is amazing. It's wild. Some of you have been waiting decades for this. It just feels like you've, you're in a new era. It's wonderful. All right. We are baseball fans. Is that what's happening? Good morning. Hello. My name is Craig. I have the privilege of helping lead this ragamuffin group of folks. And this morning we are talking about something with a lot of gravity to it. We're talking about something with a lot of gravity to it. And I hope that as we start to talk about it, we can hear God's voice. Every Sunday we hear three voices. You hear, you hear the preacher's voice. We hear our own voice. And we hear the voice of the Spirit. And our job is to suss those three out. So this morning, I hope we can hear God's voice as we talk about something with some gravity to it. We hear, ever since the Garden of Eden, we hear statements about God and we draw conclusions about ourselves. Ever since our first parents in the Garden, we hear statements about God and we draw conclusions about ourselves. What did that look like in the garden? You won't die. God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like him, discerning good and evil. That's a statement about God. We hear it. And then we draw conclusions about ourselves. God is withholding something from me. I'm on my own. I have to reach out and take. I can't trust him to provide. I'm navigating this on my own. We hear statements about God. We draw conclusions about ourselves. I recently heard a stand-up comedian who I think accurately summarizes a statement about God many of us feel. We may have never heard it, but he puts words to these statements about God we might feel. Here's a, the ballpark of what he said. He said something like this. You know, people ask me all the time, how come you're not a Christian? I'm like, Christianity is so weird, I don't get it. It's really crazy. Here's what Christianity is. God loves you. You're the apple of his eye. He wants a relationship with you. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. And he loves you. And if you don't believe that, he's going to send you to hell. <laughs> and we laugh because we don't know what to do. It's a statement about God through which we make conclusions about ourselves. What's God like? Is he offering us love? And if we say, no, nah, we're good, 
there's the danger of him punishing us. As a pastor, I have had the privilege of doing like sitting with married couples through their pain. And I can just tell you, if somebody in a marriage relationship said, I really love my spouse. I want it to work out. And if it doesn't work out, I'm going to burn the house down. We would be on the phone making appointments. That is not love. And we intuitively know that. That is fear. That is threatening. Not love. So what do we do? This morning, we are going to hear Jesus say things to his audience. Things like, if you don't believe in me, you can't go where I'm going. And that is a strong implication, right? Because where is he going? He's going to a place called heaven. And if we don't go there, we can go to the other place. We hear statements about God, sometimes even statements about God from God. And we draw conclusions about ourselves. Now, I want you just to hang in there with me. Are we all still here? Okay. My concern is that we hear Jesus' statements coming through a filter. We hear what Jesus is saying. If you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. And we hear that through a filter. And this morning, I want to use all the tools in my toolbox to challenge that filter. Is our filter being shaped by Scripture? Is our filter being shaped by the story the Bible is telling and what the words God is saying? Or are we bringing something else to that filter? This is of utmost importance because it is making statements about who God is. What's he like? Is he good? If somebody says to you, Love me or I'll destroy you. That's evil. Is God evil? What's his relationship like to evil? We've got to use all our tools in the toolbox to suss through this. We're going on a walk in a garden this morning, and we've got to mine the edges. So if you have your Bibles... Please turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We are going to start reading John chapter 8, not Matthew 8, not Mark 8, not Romans 8. John 8, there we go. John 8, 21. And if you would, please stand with me out of reverence for God's word. John 8, 21. I just want to warn you, uh, some of your Bibles have headings, and we're going to read a little past the heading. Those headings are only about 200 years old. They're not inspired, so we're not like crossing a boundary here. Fear not. John 8, 21. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away. You'll look for me. 
You'll die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? He continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you, you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. That he is just added for clarity's sake. He's literally saying, if you do not believe that I am, that's God's name. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just as I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied, I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is the word of the Lord. God, we need your help. Is that comedian right? What are you like? What's your heart toward us? Father, I pray that this morning we would have our filter challenged, that you would be the one through which our ideas about you get filtered, that we would hear your word clearly as you intended. Father, remove distractions, remove barriers. And God, I pray that we would see your heart toward us, even if we can't understand your hand. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. We hear statements about God, and then we draw conclusions about ourselves. And oftentimes, those, those statements about God get thrown through the filters of our experiences. Let me just kind of restate some of these statements about God we hear. And again, they're from God. John 8, 21, once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And again, in 8.24, I told you, you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. You will indeed die in your sins. Especially that one. If we read that, it can sound a lot like our comedian friend. Love me or else. It's like, yeah. Love me or else. Is that really love? And the question that that stirs up in us is, well, what's God really like? What's he really like? And I think the first thing we can do to challenge our filter, are we hearing what God is like on his own terms? By the way, if we draw conclusions about someone without first hearing from them, I just think there's a word for that. It's rude. And so we're not going to be rude toward God. We're going to hear what he's saying and we're going to say, God, I hear that and I have questions. Help me understand that. And the first way that we can challenge our filter is we have to talk about, we have to ask these two statements Jesus says. He says, I'm going away, you'll look for me, and you will die in your sin. 
Where I go, you cannot come. And this other statement, I told you, you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. These two statements, we have to ask ourselves, are these threats or are these warnings? Is Jesus threatening his audience or is he warning his audience? What's the difference, you ask? Let me illustrate. And again, as I was practicing saying this, it just sounds very weird coming from your pastor. So, just please understand, I would not say this to you on my good days. All right, I would try to never say this. So, you're going to hear it. Like, Whoa, I can't believe pastor said that. Yeah, we're just trying to illustrate something here. Okay, here we go. What's a threat? Here's a threat. If you keep drinking and driving, I'm going to kill you. Do you hear the threatening nature of that? Again, not something I say. If you keep drinking and driving... I'm going to kill you. That would be a threat. We all consensus threat. Here's a warning. If you keep drinking and driving, you're going to die. If you keep drinking and driving, you're going to kill somebody else. Do you hear the difference? Do you hear the difference between a threat and a warning? We have to ask ourselves, is Jesus threatening us or is Jesus warning us? The flourishing life, I believe, the wise life, must have a healthy relationship to warnings. Think about your relationship with your doctor. Think about two good doctors, two excellent physicians. The doctor who gives warnings and the doctor who doesn't give warnings. They're both in the right. The doctor who gives the warnings says, this is serious. And if we don't change course, something drastic could happen. That's a warning. The doctor who's not giving a warning says something like this. We're just at that state where we need to make them comfortable. We're past warnings. It's just make them comfortable season. The flourishing life must have a healthy relationship to warnings. God is saying to us, if you don't come to me, you will be apart from me. And if you are apart from me, that doesn't end well. That is explicitly stated in this passage. Look again at verse 21. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Look again at 8.24. I told you that you would die in your sins. You do not, if you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. What's he saying? The Hebrew word for sin is chata. It's one of those splash zone words. So sorry, Aaron. Chata. The book of Judges gives us a helpful definition of what the word chata means. It says the Benjaminites were so skilled with a slingshot that they could throw that slingshot and not chata. Not sin. Are they like, watch this. I can throw a slingshot without stealing. I can throw a slingshot and I'm not going to swear. That's not what he's saying. They could throw the stone and not miss. What does it mean to sin? Sin is missing. What are we missing? We are missing God's presence. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and missed God's presence, his glory. Sin is attempting to live life apart from God's presence. Sin is... It's just what our first parents did in the garden. When they heard a statement about God and they drew conclusions about themselves. You're not going to die. 
God knows if you eat it, you're going to live. You're going to be open. You'll be like him. I need to be like God. That would be helpful if we're going to rule this world. Oh, man, God didn't give me something that's helpful. I'm on my own, and we step out on our own. That's missing. No relational presence. Here's the warning Jesus is offering. He's saying, if you don't believe, if you don't trust me, if you don't receive what I'm offering, you will continue to live without me. If you are pursuing life without me, you will find life without me. Do you hear the difference? There are consequences for our decisions. We have agency. And God honors our agency. He's not like our comedian friend thinks. He's not, hey, love me or I'm going to beat you up. He said, hey, come to me. Love me. And if you're trying to do this without me, you, you can't experience me. There's three nouns that the Hebrew Bible uses to describe who God is. Three nouns. There's many adjectives. You may be aware of them. Holy, holy, holy. Lots of adjectives. But there's three nouns. Light, life, and love. Light, life, and love. Those are the three nouns that the Old Testament uses to describe God. Light, life, and love is saying, come to light, life, and love. If you don't, you're going to be isolated from light, life, and love. These are warnings. The problem is, too many of us feel that we are at war with God. And so just like in the garden, when Adam and Eve hear God walking in the cool of the day, they hear someone coming to fight, someone coming to destroy, and they do what? Run and hide. God's coming for us, and we think he's in the next room, and he's just run and hide. That's the worst expression of it. The best expression is, look busy, Jesus is coming. We live in fear. There are two ways to build an attachment with someone. Fear. Fear builds attachment. Think about veterans of the armed services. They bond over really hard, scary situations. We are in the trenches together. It's dangerous. We're bonded. That's not how God is offering to bond with us. Look again with me at the text when it says this. Verse 30, even as he spoke, many believe in him. I am hopeful that that does not mean many were scared out of their like, ever-loving minds. They were like, oh, okay, we'll do it, whatever you say. Because let's go what Jesus says to them next. Verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. If you abide in my word, is what it literally says. If you live, if you dwell in what I'm saying about you, you'll really be my disciples. We live and dwell with a filter that God is harsh, he's coming after us, he's looking for us, run. And this morning, I want to use all the tools in my toolbox to change your filter. I live in a house where the previous owners uh, basically built a filter with, uh, built a furnace with their own DIY ingenuity, which was not a lot. It's like, a, it's like 10 furnaces combined. And uh, I have to change that filter, I think every three months. Is that when you change a filter? And it is the hardest thing I do all year. I have to like take off these two plates. I then have to like 
use a flashlight in a place, and then you know, this white, and then I had to like, it doesn't fit, and I had to like yank it out, and it's black, and I don't know why, and we're sick all the time, and then I had to like get it in, and it never fits, and it takes me like all day. Like I have listened to whole podcasts trying to change this filter. That's what we're doing today. We're trying to change this filter, and we're going to use something called biblical theology to change our filter. Biblical theology is finding themes in the hyperlinks of Scripture. What do I mean by that? We're going to take this verse, and I just don't want you to take my word for it. Oh, yeah, Jesus, hey, he's warning, not threatening. Like, yeah, I'm not totally convinced. I think God is scary, and he's big, and he's God, and I can't really argue with that, so I got to, like, kind of just submit or I lose. The stakes are very high. I want to work to convince your souls that this is not only in line with the story the Bible is telling you, it actually is the story the Bible is telling. That God is looking for us to offer his relational presence. I want you to see that in a place where we've often heard the story that, oh, look at God like beat somebody up and then he uses it for good. Isn't that great? I want to look at that story and challenge your perception of that story with two things. Providence and then God's broken compass. So we're going to talk about providence and then we're going to talk about God's broken compass. We're going to look at the story of Joseph. We're going to kind of understand. We're going to hold that up to our passage. Then we're going to also go to Isaiah for a second and hold that up to our passage. All right? We're going to do biblical theology, finding themes in the hyperlinks. Hyperlinks, like when you read Wikipedia and you're reading about like the PLO and it says PLO is the Palestinian and Palestine is blue. And then you click on that and it sends you to Palestine's page. That's what the Bible is full of these hyperlinks. So we're going to see, like, what kind of God is God like? We're going to look through the whole biblical story, starting in Genesis. The theme verse of Genesis, the theme verse of Genesis you may be aware of, it's a verse that's at the end of the book, and it explains the whole thing. What's happening here? It defines God's relationship to evil. God is not evil, right? Like, there are a lot of things that are unclear about the Bible. This is not one of them. God is not evil, well, what's his relationship like to evil? One of the biblical authors tells us this. God cannot be tempted by evil. What does that mean? Evil cannot appeal to God. Like, can God do... Are there things God can't do? Yes. God cannot be tempted by evil. That's something he can't do. What's another thing he can't do? He cannot create a God who's equal to him, right? You see, there's things... God cannot lie. God's relationship to evil, what he says about himself, he cannot be tempted by evil. Evil cannot appeal to him because of who he is. But there's evil in the world, you say. Well, that's where the doctrine of providence helps us. Here's how Joseph says it to his brothers, the guy with the amazing technicolor dream coat. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. For good. What Joseph is doing is he's giving the theme of the book of Genesis. The world has been thrown into chaos. Is God chaotic? No, no, no. God is respecting our agency. He's saying, hey, your choices are real, and they do real things, and they have real consequences, and I'm not, I'm not going to jump in and force you to make other choices. And your choices without me create evil and chaos in the world. But watch me use it differently. So he's not distant. He's not like the founding fathers thought where he set a clock and they just let it go. He's not a deist. He does respect agency and he's right there with us. 
And when, we, when evil goes into the world, he is at work. Here's what the doctrine of providence is. Providence is the governing power of God that oversees his creation and works out his plan for it. Let me say that again. Doc, uh, providence is the governing power of God that oversees his creation and works out his plan for it. What in the world am I talking about? God has a plan. He's going to rescue us. He wants us to be with him. We are working against that plan. We think he's not good. We run. God uses our running for good. And there's no, there's, there's no clearer place to see that than the story of Joseph. Joseph has to go into the basement to get to the palace. Joseph goes through a terrible situation. He's the original Nepo baby. Joseph is loved more by his dad than his other siblings. His dad loves him more than the other siblings, and the other siblings hate that. I grew up in the 90s, and I had two older brothers who one time duct taped me to the bottom of a top bunk. I don't know why. I, I imagine I'm probably the best little brother ever. But they duct taped me to the bottom of a top bunk. And I never forgave them. I'll get them back one day. Joseph's brothers did that, but in the ancient Near East. They didn't have duct tape yet, so they're like, okay, let's throw them in a well, and then let's sell them into slavery. Not good. They make him a victim of their jealousy. He becomes a victim. Did he do wrong? Sure. He didn't deserve that. So we see evil. Now, what some of us might be tempted to think is God is doing this. All right, God, all right, God, look, God's got this, God's selling Joseph into slavery. No, 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 no. His brothers are doing that. And that's an important distinction. Did God cause Joseph to be sold into slavery? Let me say this. God causes evil like the sun causes the, caused, excuse me, the Oklahoma City bombing. Let me say that again. God causes evil like the sun caused the Oklahoma City bombing. Do you understand what I'm saying? If there was no sun, would there be an Oklahoma City bombing? No. There would be nothing without a sun. Like, we, we need the sun for life. So the sun caused the Oklahoma City bombing, right? Because if there's no sun, there's no Oklahoma City bombing. No. God is in control. God is the creator. He's what we call sovereign. He's governing the universe. And he has chosen to govern it in such a way that respects people's agency. And sometimes they act in evil ways. Often. They act in evil ways. What's God's reaction to that? He's like, oh boy. This is tough. Let's start over. No, he's saying, I can flip this over. I can actually use this evil to undo itself. Watch. So Joseph gets sold into slavery. This is a very important sentence. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. That's where the slave drivers, the slavers, took him. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. The rest of the verse says bottom. Potiphar buys Joseph in his slavery. Potiphar is who? What's his, uh, what's his title? That becomes important later. Joseph is a slave. Just or unjust? Okay. We, 
Not super convincing. Slavery is just or unjust? There we go. So again, the downward spiral of him being a victim is getting harder and harder and harder. It's getting worse and worse. What happens though? The text tells us this. Yahweh was with him. And so people are working toward his evil and God's working out for good. And he blesses him. And everything Joseph's hand touched flourishes. So much so that Potiphar, who if you think like the world is racist today, but the world was super duper racist back then. Potiphar is like not predisposed to like Joseph. He likes him though at such a rate where he's like, I'm going to leave everything in charge of you. I'm going to go to the lake, man. I guess the river. I'm going to go to the river and just like hang out there. You're in charge, Joseph. You're good to go. I just, I just trust you implicitly. While Potiphar is gone, his wife tries to seduce Joseph. Again and again, Joseph says, no, thank you. Finally, she gets frustrated. She makes one last plea. He says, no, thank you. And then she accuses him. She really accuses her husband. She says, the slave you brought. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like the garden, right? The woman you gave me. See, evil divides and conquers. God's not evil. He's not about dividing and conquering. He says this. The slave you brought did this. Potiphar is angry and he throws him into prison. And we feel really bad. The evil deathward spiral continues. Where's God? What's he doing? Well, he's working again. Just like God blessed him in Potiphar's house, now he's blessing Joseph in this prison. And then two officials from Pharaoh's court get arrested. And here's some details we get. Remember, who is Potiphar? What's his title? You guys are great. Genesis 40 verse 3. And they put them, those are the two officials, in the custody, in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. Uh-oh, that's a really important detail. What's happening here? Joseph got arrested on a false accusation, and they threw him in prison. These two officials in Pharaoh's court get arrested. They put him in prison. Where's the prison? The house of the captain of the guard. Who is the captain of the guard? Potiphar. The, the, he, the Hebrew word for official, he says Potiphar was an, uh, uh, one of the Pharaoh's officials. It's also eunuch, which may give us some details as to why this is happening with Potiphar's uh, wife. And this may not have been the first time this happened. And so evil is being done against Joseph. And God is using some evil folks to protect him. And he's, okay. You're in charge of upstairs in Potiphar's house. Now you're in charge of the downstairs in Potiphar's house. Now, this is where we talk about God's broken compass. Joseph is in the basement at Potiphar's house. And had he not been in that basement, he would not have met these two officials. And what do these two officials do? They have a nightmare. And they ask Joseph if he can interpret their dreams. And he does. One of them dies, one of them goes free. Don't worry about that. The one who goes free goes back to Pharaoh. Then a few years go by. And then who has a dream? Pharaoh. And then what happens? Oh, yeah, wait. Hey, a guy, a guy, a Hebrew guy helped me interpret my dream. Maybe he can do that for you. Pharaoh does. And again, God's with him. Blessing. And he ends up saving his family. He ends up saving the people who threw him in the pit because a famine happens and Egypt has all the food because of that dream. And his family comes, and instead of punishing them, here's what Joseph says. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The world is an evil place. Period. Complete sentence. 
It's a dog-eat-dog world. We get scared, we hurt each other. Relationships break. And we look at that and we are hopeless. What can we do but take care of ourselves? Run and hide, no one is safe. And God is saying, I've not left you. I'm here with you. He, just like he was here with Joseph, look what he says about Jesus. Look back in our passage, verse 29. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. God's relational presence can provide us being seen, safe, soothed, and secure in an evil world. Because man's evil does not threaten God's goodness. Our problem is we feel the evil and we blame God. We truly believe in our heart of hearts that God's in the next room and he's looking for us and he's coming to punish us. And Jesus in this passage is raising his hand. And it takes work. It takes work to trust that when Jesus raises his hand, it's not to threaten, but it's to hold out a life raft. It's to say, I've got you. And his providence tells us that. But I don't think you're convinced. I don't think you really believe that. So we got to look at God's broken compass. God has a broken compass. And God's broken compass, down is up. I don't, I don't like that. I wish God's compass wasn't broken. But in God's broken compass, down is up. How do we know that? Joseph had to go down. He went into the basement. Had he not been in the basement, these two people would not have brought him into the palace. Jesus is expressing that idea of a broken compass here in John chapter 8 as well. Here is what he says. He says, verse 28, Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own. I have a secure relationship to the Father. I am safe, seen, secured, and soothed. I'm loved by the Father, and I'm offering that to you. When you lift me up, you'll see that. The phrase to lift someone up means to exalt them, to put them on a throne. You are lifted up if you are on a throne. The original audience would have been like, lift it up? Lift up, we don't even like you, bro. Lift up. We're trying to kill you. What are you talking about? We're going to lift you up. Are you crazy? Are you crazy? That's what they would have asked. Because... They knew their Hebrew Bibles. Backpedal with me a little bit to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision. He has a vision of the temple. He walks into the temple and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. If you didn't know that, no worries. High and lifted up. What does that mean? Exalted. He goes into God's temple and he sees God exalted, high and lifted up. And we're like, yeah, that makes sense. That's who God is. Fast forward though. To Isaiah chapter 52. This is the prophet describing Jesus and what Jesus is going to do. 52.13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be high and lifted up. We're like, okay, he's going to be on a throne, right? Got it. Just as there were many who were appalled at him. What? His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Wait. It, I, 
on, from a, why, why is he beat up on a throne? Not just, no, 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 he, like we, nice crowns, pomp and circumstance. What are you talking about? Like beat up on a throne. Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. What's he saying? There is evil and violence in the world, and I am not here to do evil and violence to you. I am here to take evil and violence on myself. Just like Joseph became the victim of violence, Jesus becomes the victim of our violence. He says, when you lift me up. Where is Jesus exalted? To a cross. To a cross. And what happens toward us? Look at verse 30. This just gives me so much hope. Even as he spoke, many believed. They're like, I want that. To the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, if you live in this message, if you let this shape you, if you let this remove your filter, if this becomes your new filter that I am offering to take your place, in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. If you live there, you're my disciple. You're truly my disciple. And then this, oh, it gets better. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Are you free? Or are you stuck in your old filter? Kurt Thompson tries to help give us a practice. What does it mean to really abide in Jesus? What does it really mean to believe that he's for us, that he took on the violence on himself and offers us peace with God, that we're seen, safe, soothed, and secured? That's a healthy attachment. He's saying, I'm here, I'm for you, I'm coming after you, I'm on your side, I'm not coming to punish, I'm coming to love. What does it really look like to abide in that, to live in that? We know now about um, athletes and musicians, of which I'm not really either. We know about athletes and musicians that they can improve their performance both in the concert hall and on the field by imagining, imagining drills and imagining scales. G, A, B, C, D. Just imagining in their brain. They can actually get better at their instrument. They don't have an instrument with them, but they're imagining it. Kurt Thompson invites us to imagine Jesus saying these words to us. And I just want you to pay attention. What does this do in your body when you hear these words? Are you happy? Are you hopeful? Are you skeptical? Here's what Kurt Thompson wants us to imagine Jesus saying over us. Indeed, it is finished. It's all done. All those things that we both know keep you from receiving my love for you. I'm not paying attention to them. I'm paying attention to you. I want you to only pay attention to me. I want you at my banquet. I want you sitting right next to me and to the others who I know can't wait to sit next to you when they see you. I would love for you to believe me that it's all true. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? It means we take these words and we just mull over them till it stirs up hope. We practice. God, he lifts me up to his banqueting table and his banner over me 
is love. He's not mad at you. He's not in the other room looking to punish you. He's in the other room looking to love and to bless you. Our problem is we don't cooperate. We're like a person on the operating table with a gun. It's not pretty. There's blood everywhere. And we're like, see God, you're messy. And he's saying, can you believe? Can you trust? Can you trust that I'm for you? World War I created many theological crises. Now, I think there's this beautiful prayer that came out of World War I from Edmund Shalito. He's a free church minister. He said this, If we have never sought, if we have never sought, Jesus, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have the O oh, Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the bomb? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. Jesus says when he's lifted up, we'll know. And it's an echo back to Isaiah. When he says, my servant will act wisely, he'll be high and lifted up. And then what happens? 53.5, by his wounds, we are healed. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Evil and wickedness creates wounds. We all bear the scars. And Jesus steps in our place. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all hear messages and statements about God. And they shape how we feel about ourselves. Can you hear this message? I want you sitting next to me. And to the others who I know can't wait to sit next to you when they see you, I would love for you to believe that's all true. We believe, Lord Jesus. Help our unbelief. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.